What if you lived in an Arctic-like frontier trying to survive despite the trauma that you've suffered as a child and the invaders who keep moving into your native land? Then the invaders kidnapped your brother, who has apparently told the captain the secret location of an ancient city with lost treasures. Explore the award-winning fantasy novel Seventh City with us and author Emily Hayes. This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. In said podcast, we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we mine the depths of these stories for their wonders, their beauties, their truths to apply to the real world that our creator, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. And I am E. Stephen Burnett. I publish Lorehaven, and I'm also the co-author of the nonfiction book, The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and after learning about today's guest in her book, I Want to Become a Musher, and you'll find out what that means. This is episode 42, What If Invaders Kidnapped Your Brother in a Frozen Land? And we'll be interviewing Emily Hayes, author of Seventh City. Today, I believe as we are scheduled to release this podcast, Emily has a new short story collection available set in the same world of Seventh City. You can find all of those links in the show notes as well as the link to the new Lorehaven digital issue. We have Emily on the cover of our fall 2020 issue, thanks to her now award-winning novel, Seventh City. This past summer, uh, she won in two categories, among them the Realm Award. That is, uh, the judges of that competition felt that this was the best novel of the award winners in other categories. That was quite a surprise to Emily. We get to ask her about that a little bit later. Uh, we've mentioned this title before uh, in our episode that covered the Realm Awards. Uh, you can also find that link in the show notes. And now uh, Emily gets me on the cover of the new Lorehaven issue. That issue includes not just the review and feature story and a prologue excerpt uh, from Seventh City, uh, but also 14 other reviews of the best Christian-made uh, fantastical novels that we could find and articles and other resources designed to help you as a fan get the most out of these stories. Uh, we believe these stories actually help strengthen our faith, not by teaching us directly, but as we say in the interview, by giving us a taste, by cultivating our imaginations to love the things of God, to love him for who he is and to love his gospel and the applications of this gospel in what can often be a very complex world. Zach and listeners, uh, when I was reading this story, I mean, it, there's so much atmosphere here uh, in this uh, this Arctic-like world. It's very historical feeling. Uh, if you go in there expecting, you know, snow dragons or something like that, you'll be disappointed. But you shouldn't be disappointed. Uh, That's a very character-driven story. Although, uh, you know, this 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 group of people is on a quest to find this ancient city. Uh, what happens is you get some conflicts between people groups and some startlingly. Uh, not contemporary feeling themes, but uh, the deeper version of those themes, you know, the idea of people who fear one another and who in some cases have abused or even invaded one another. Some of that just surprised me in a very good way. And I, I, I would love to be able to share this story with more readers. Well, we've got a review of Seventh City in Lorehaven Magazine. Stephen, you want to give us an excerpt from that for the podcast? Yes, indeed. Uh, this actually is the whole review, but this is from the new Lorehaven issue, our uh, featured review of Seventh City. Quote, Cold weather can bring wintry mixes of ice and freezing rain, which in turn can give us mixed feelings. Songs may romanticize falling snow and crackling fires while kids long for days home from school. 
Then reality stings our skin with frostbite and makes grown-ups fear icy injuries and frozen pipes. Is winter then good or bad? It's both and neither. Winter is just a season, offering equal parts peril and cheer. So it is with Seventh City, the wintry mixed and morally challenging fantasy from Emily Hayes. Set in a land north of this fantasy world's Arctic Circle, this tale starts simply. A young mother tells her daughter Maki about the fabled city, Inuk Katsu. This is the place where the heroes dwell, the mother recalls. It was closed to all but those who proved themselves worthy, and the good live there. A day later, Maki and her older brother Tsanu can't find her. Their mother has abandoned them. From there, Seventh City fulfills its silent pledge to explore a land of incredible physical and moral terrain. Chilled weather threatens your life, yet also blesses you with epic snowscapes, campfire camaraderie, and glimpses of the Aurora Borealis. Meanwhile, even heroes must tread on ground frozen by bitter grief. When Sanu is kidnapped by a foreign military captain determined to find this lost city, Maki must rescue him by infiltrating the camp of these hated invaders. It's in this territory, often unmapped by Christian readers, that Seventh City truly inspires. Yes, these invaders are only irredeemable. Or are they? Yes, Maki's people, the land's natives, are only oppressed victims. Or are they? Readers tempted to favor simplistic approaches to the obvious bad guys, even invaders, may grow by imagining themselves in a land that leaves one no easy choices to survive or do the most good. As one invader, boldly named Ransom, phrases it, There are many ways to react to the wrong we see in the world, Maki. Some run away from it, have nothing to do with it. Others ignore it. I cannot speak for them. It is the coward's way. And still others brave it to its face and try in their way to make it better. Like a skilled dog sled driver, Hayes navigates such perilous turns and keeps all jostling characters and subplots on their course. It's a beauty to behold, especially when realization dawns about these deeper cultural and moral themes. Lest one expect any literary slush, it's all been pre-cleared for smooth sledding. Sure, we've read those brave girl dresses up as boy stories and seen other lost city stories, but city treats these as relatively minor elements. Even one great leap, the concept that an ambitious and abusive invader captain would trust one strange young man's word about an ancient city makes more sense by the story's end. Hayes portrays this land so realistically, even with detailed handling of horse care and snowshoe crafting, that one half expects to hear mentions of the Klondike Gold Rush. Seventh City feels like a lost history from our own world. It is only separated from reality by imaginative touches like a mythical city and giant creatures. Bundle up for Seventh City's fantastical journey and don't mind the wintry skies. Only from such gray areas can we experience the lessons and wonders of winter. End quote. And you can read that full review at lorehaven.com. Just click on the fall 2020 issue on our front page, at least as we're recording this. And the full review, by the way, also includes uh, some notes about uh, any content that uh, readers may want to discern, as well as a note about uh, for whom this story we believe is best suited. Well, this is uh, so fantastic sounding, and not least of which because, you know, here in central Texas, we don't really have winter. In fact, I have a shirt that has winter in air quotes. And so it's uh, really exciting to hear this story about an actual winter, an actual frozen tundra place. And so let's bring Emily onto the show to hear more about this story. Emily Hayes is a lover of log cabins, strong coffee, NASCAR, and the smell of old books. 
Her writing is fueled by good characters and a lifelong passion for storytelling. When she is not busy turning words into worlds, she can often be found baking, singing, or caring for one of the many dogs and horses in her life. She lives with her family in Michigan. Emily, welcome to Fantastical Truth. Thank you. Well, thank you for boarding your dog sled and uh, joining us today. Uh, I now see from that bio there uh, that you care for many dogs and horses, which uh, partly answers one of the questions that I had for today about your research there. Just a lot of a uh, mm-hmm. lot of personal skills and experiences that went into the world of Seventh City. But before delving specifically into that world, we always like to ask a new author who joins us, uh, how did you first discover uh, biblical faith and fantastic imagination? Maybe you discovered one before the other or both at the same time. Like, How, how did that happen in your story? I discovered both of them very early on in my life. Um, in fact, some of my very earliest memories of life at all um, tie into both of these. My uh, My parents were... Uh, They taught me the gospel very early on. Um, I became a Christian at three, which sounds very young, but I remember it very clearly, and I knew what I was doing. So that was very important to me from a very early age, just reading my Bible, growing in my personal relationship with God. And right around that time, I would tell myself a lot of stories even before I could read and um, make up things, read lots of books. And it took a while, actually, for the two to kind of come together in my mind as something that was tied together and coherent. So the two kind of were parallel with each other for quite a while, maybe till I was 13 or 14. And I started really putting pen to paper and writing. And for a while, it was a lot of just writing stories because I loved stories. I loved historical fiction, actually. And delving into fantasy was actually an outpouring of when I couldn't think of a historical genre that my idea fit in, I would make up a world to put it in. And you can see it even in some of my published works where there's not a great deal of fantastical elements. It's got a very historical feeling uh, because it came out of the historical fiction that I read. It was Quite some time after that, when I started considering publishing, which was, I've written for maybe 15 years, but it was only maybe six years ago that I even considered publishing. And I had written a number of novels by then. And it was quite a long journey, actually, that God took me on to come to understand that the writing that I did and the stories that I loved to do or to write could be used as a tool uh, for him. And not that I wrote entirely for myself, but I had this mindset that, you know, there were certain things that were better to do for God and that maybe writing wasn't one of them. It was many, many years and months of praying and saying, God, is this really what you want me to do? There was some discouragement from people in my life. Um, who thought maybe that writing wasn't the best path for me. He very specifically, God that is, um, very specifically impressed on me that this is what he wanted me to do, at least for the time. And after a while, I came to understand that stories are a very powerful vehicle for truth and for creating a taste in readers 
for the right things. So you mentioned stories can be used as a tool. Like what, what's kind of your vision for how you want to see your stories be used by God? Well, when I start a project, I, do, I pray and I say, Lord, I'm sort of leaving that up to you in the broad sense. But in a general overall mission sense, I guess, it would be creating a hunger for the right sorts of things. C.S. Lewis, actually, he, um, he came to God partly through his love of Norse mythology. He saw things there that created a hunger and a taste for certain things that when he saw God and he saw Christianity, it clicked and he was like, wait, this is the stuff I love. Yeah. And um, actually, Aslan says to Lucy in one of the books in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia that her coming to love him in Narnia, you know, is so that she can see him better in the real world. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of thing where you can help your readers gain a taste for the right things to see maybe sacrifice or loyalty or, you know, some of these truths that when they see it in the real world, having maybe read it or come to love it through my books, hopefully, it'll click with them and they'll have more of a taste for, for Christianity or the truth of the gospel. Well, that, that is a fantastic use, I think, of the word taste. Uh, the psalmist wrote, taste and see that the Lord is good. And while the, the psalmist as an, uh, or the psalmists as artists would use imagery and imagination to dwell on the wonder of God's law and the wonder of God's nature on his own, uh, you know, specifically with reference to the doctrine of the self-revealing God, they would also call and plead with the readers or the participants in the worship service. They'd say, come taste and see, you know, experience God with your other senses as well, not just with your mind. And I, I see fiction as, as a way to cultivate those senses that go beyond, you know, mere comprehension of facts about God, which is part of knowing the gospel, but, you know, certainly it does not end there. That's, I think, where fiction falls. And I'm, I'm curious then, you know, because uh, it sounds like you're, um, you know, the world that you built for the novel Seventh City uh, didn't seem to start with you wanting to, you know, state something or anything like that. Uh, it sounds like some images and some very real experiences that you've had and some skill mm-hmm. sets contributed to that book. I'm curious which images got you started uh, with uh, with the creation of Seventh City. It was definitely the land and the dogs. I had just come off of um, watching the Iditarod. I am a a very avid fan of sled dog racing and the the Iditarod specifically. And I was kind of having the post-Iditarod blues and thinking about Alaska and that kind of terrain. I think Maki just kind of came to me at that point. And I had this idea of a girl trying to come with to terms with an invading group and trying to protect her brother, and trying to be brave. I had particularly had a couple um, experiences right around the time of the Iditarod where I was trying to be brave. And so I had this idea of this girl maybe going through some of those similar things in that kind of really unforgiving world. Now let me interrupt you for a second. For our listeners who may not be Familiar with sled dog racing, uh, which which could include myself. <laughs> what is the Iditarod exactly? 
So the Iditarod is a thousand mile sled dog race that they run in March every year. And they run it from Anchorage, which is like the southeast area of of Alaska, to Nome, basically across the sort of the southern end through the Yukon and all the way to the uh, western tip of Alaska. And it follows the run. It was the great diphtheria run in the early 1900s where the trains couldn't get through to get medicine to a sick number of children in Nome. So they used dog sleds and they did team relays to get over there. And the founders decided it was a good way, this this race would be a good way to kind of keep the art of sled dog uh, running alive. And it has turned into a sport that um, people can do full time now. And so there's usually between 60 and 80 racers every year. And you get to know them and you get to get to know the dogs and the different mushers. That's the dog uh, driver's personalities. You get to kind of cheer them on and see the different bloodlines of the dogs. It's really fascinating. Have you been to to see an Iditarod race in person? I have not. I would love to, and it's on the bucket list. I met a musher who came to Michigan once when I was quite little, um, and he had his dogs there, but I've never been out to Alaska to see the race. So besides uh, learning about dog racing, what other kinds of research did you do to bring Maki's uh, chili world to life? This one was unique because I did not have to research a lot of the world and the circumstances because I've worked outdoors on farms through the winter like maybe the last 10 years or so so a lot of that sort of thing was kind of came natural to me but I did do a little bit of research with the languages I looked up a full glossary I think it might have been Inupiaq maybe the dialect and read through the words I made up my own words but I read through a lot of the words to kind of get an idea of the feel of the language. And I read some accounts from adventurers who explored very early on up in the Alaskan territory. Well, that's why the story has such a ring of authenticity then. It feels like there is a language and a whole culture at the back of it. It feels very historical because you've read so much in that genre. Like, okay, these may not be actual you know, Inuit terms or something, but they feel very much like them. And that's why I personally enjoyed uh, reading the story so much. The story follows uh, Maki as she's going through some very difficult times. First, you know, as you see in the prologue, which we actually have uh, courtesy of you in the recent issue of Lorehaven, you can go to lorehaven.com and find our fall 2020 issue there, as well as your article exploring some of the answers that I'm about to ask you about for my next question. Uh, but you've mentioned that uh, you you went through some very difficult times, a, a season of grief, perhaps, uh, during at least the editing of the story. And I'm, I'm curious, how did that season of grief affect the story, even though I'm, I'm assuming it was already written and everything there? But it sounds like there was a lot of uh, a lot of your personal background at the time that uh, that was captured and at least some of the emotions of this uh, surprisingly complex uh, character study. Yes, definitely. What's interesting about that is I wrote Maki's mother leaving her because that in some ways mirrored my life. I have a wonderful mother. It wasn't my mom. 
when I was two, I lost my grandpa and he was my favorite, favorite person in the world. And out of that came a lot of fear and grief and working through that I had no clue was that until I was an adult and thought back on it. And in that similar way, that is where Maki comes from, is early childhood loss. It's made her very protective of the people she loves. It makes her very afraid of losing them. And at this particular time when I was editing, there were some moments, the real turning points in Maki's journey and her story, which I did cover a little bit in the article I wrote. Those came from her having those past griefs that have created these fears that she has now that she might lose her brother, that she, people she loves might die. And I had been feeling that very keenly at that particular time when I was editing. And I think I had been trying to rewrite the climax multiple times, and it just wasn't clicking for me. And I think it would have turned out to just be playing a little bit more of an adventure, a little more of things happening, turning out okay, you know, exciting adventure kind of end. But having gone through that grief right then, it suddenly struck me that what Maki needed wasn't necessarily here moments, but she needed to learn to let go of control or her perceived control. And that's what, that's what kind of created and affected the whole arc of her journey was her being afraid, her trying to be brave about it, and then realizing that sometimes you don't just grit your teeth and push through. Sometimes it's, you know, much more nuanced than that. And it's about letting go of that control that you think you have, because ultimately you can't really, you know, she couldn't, and you can't in your life, control every single thing that happens and stop things from happening. It's much more about letting go and leaving God in control. That is, uh, in a, in, I think a very good way, a dangerous idea, particularly because what Maki struggles with is I think a universal fear or a haunting that I think so many people have, especially in a culture of family breakup and trauma, you know, more so than even just the ravages of sin, this earth groans under the bondage to the curse, the bondage to decay is what Romans 8 says. So that's expected. But particularly in our generation, you know, there have been, uh, you know, ideologies and groups and just individuals who, for whatever, you know, whatever reasons we wouldn't get into here, you know, seem to think that uh, disrupting family structures and actually contributing to people's trauma is healthy for us. You know, my wife and I are uh, active in uh, foster care. And so we see more and more the ravages of this destruction up close. And it comes through in this different way, especially as Maki's also dealing with the invaders in this land. You know, mm -hmm. they're the one, they're the natives, you know, they're the ones who've lived here for generations. They understand the land, the creatures, they have this culture. And then these people come in from outside and are, you know, it's not necessarily an invading army, but they're these several little invading armies and just acting like they belong here. And the story goes in some surprising directions in showing how Maki gets to know these people and the different approaches that the various members of this military company have to dealing with abuse in their mm -hmm. culture. You know, do you do you confront it directly? Do you try to make peace, you know, while still doing what's right at the end? I mean, I, 
I love the direction that it went here. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious where maybe some of those came, uh, themes came from uh, before we moved to our next question. Well, I think part of it is I'm actually quarter Chinese and I've always loved racial reconciliation. I've always loved stories about interracial marriages, those sorts of things, because that was it was my story. It was what I grew up with, what I loved. And so those sorts of themes tend to creep in where you get a lot of conflict, maybe, between different nationalities or different countries, and you see that resolved. But also, I think it gets too simplified in stories many times, the line between good guys and bad guys. And it tends to be drawn between maybe ideologies or race, where it should be drawn maybe in the individual where I'm going to forget who said this, but somebody said that the line between good and evil runs in the heart of every man. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Thank you. And I, I feel that's something maybe that doesn't get shown quite as much in stories and something that I really feel very strongly about myself. And so I really wanted to echo those themes and those sorts of things. I'll just say plainly, it wasn't necessarily like I sat there and I thought, I am going to write this, you know, and show that the line between good and evil runs between, you know, in the heart of every man. But more, that was something I believed very strongly. And so it came out in the characters as I wrote them. This really resonates with me, Emily. I, I don't uh, talk a whole lot about this on our show, but I'm, I'm writing my own novel. It's a YA science fiction, and it very much deals with grief. And it, it shows uh, a, a lot of um, you know, bad choices that the main character is making because of a lot of unresolved grief and just mm -hmm. this kind of quest to control everything. So, you know, and your book also makes me think of Frozen, or <laughs> rather Frozen 2. I mean, for the obvious reasons, but... But uh, yes. but more so Frozen 2, where Elsa's on this quest to kind of resolve the trauma of her past and, and, you know, things don't really work out the way that she would hope. And so, yeah, again, just a lot of themes there that my own writing resonates with. But um, j just to go back to your your novel, I mean, congratulations on the awards you won at Thank Realm you. Makers this year. That was really fun. And, you know, and the, the great thing about Realm Makers is just that how it's so open to new authors, to indie authors, yeah. um, and, and it just uh, really gives everyone an opportunity. So uh, tell us what that was like, uh, seeing your name there at, at the conference this <laughs> summer, that you were the winner. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite shocking to me. I had hoped, sort of beyond hope, that maybe I would win the fantasy category. It was sort of a long shot goal, I guess. And I was absolutely excited when it won fantasy and i was because it was virtual i had my family all around me and i was trying to deal with bad internet and they popped me up for they were like trying to pull me onto the video for <laughs> book of the that, year yes. and i freaked out i'm like because they hadn't even read the description or the judge's comments or anything it started to pull me before that and i was like well maybe they're pulling all the finalists on maybe this and i'm trying to like oh because of the back. delay and the stream yes, yeah exactly right. i want to keep you on uh, standby for the crowdcast yes yes so i was like i don't know what's going on but i rushed back out 
to you know my nice background i was like everybody be quiet they're trying to pull me on video and so i was i was there was like a weird few seconds where i wouldn't even put my face up on the screen because i was like sure they had made a mistake and then i was trying to scramble to find something to say but it was very very exciting and um I was just super honored that the judges would consider in indie published book and not to ever call judges bias, but I feel like uh, awards oftentimes will say, what is the most popular book here? Or, you know, who is the best known author and tend to give that weight. And the fact that they took my book, which wasn't super well known or anything, and gave it the same consideration as the other books in those categories. Uh, I was just really honored by that. Well, it certainly got my wife's attention. Uh, Naomi doesn't read a lot of speculative fiction. Um, she, <laughs> she, has, she always says like, well, you know, once I get into a book, I can never go to sleep. And so she, uh, she more prefers like historical or historical fiction, but, um, sounds like she this was is the perfect gateway drug. <laughs> yes. And, and she, that, and for that reason, she was watching the awards and she saw you come up twice, both for the fantasy and the book of the year award for realm makers. And she just said, well, I guess I need to read this book now. <laughs> like, and so she was really excited for you. Well, I'm glad I definitely, I still read more historical fiction probably than I do fantasy. So there's definitely that flavor. And I absolutely love history. We need that infusion into the, uh, into the genre of fantasy. You know, it's, I think it's better. I mean, this is not a writer's podcast, but it is better, I think, if writers are reading widely in other genres, both fiction and nonfiction, and whether it's romance or uh, you know, nonfiction books about politics or things like that. Like Any of those can go into the creation of a fantasy world because the best kinds of fantasy is not so otherworldly that it has no tie to reality, but in fact helps you look at reality in another different way uh perhaps seeing reality even better than you saw it before well and, and just to uh throw a uh a totally different example at this i am rereading or, or rather listening to um world war z you know the zombie apocalypse uh mm -hmm. kind of mockumentary and it's uh it's based on and I, I can't think of the name of it but it's based on a world war ii book like a nonfiction book that it's sort of these vignettes of like before during and after the war and that's how max brooks does this you know zombie book and wow. it's it's so funny that he he takes this very like reporter's approach to you know this fictional <laughs> the, the the war against disease but it it's the whole time it just makes me think man you know he's really researched all these cultures you know and just all the different ways people look at things and uh, uh, I, I just got through the chapter of this uh Palestinian guy that's that's living in Kuwait, and then they go back to, uh, I want to say Bethlehem or, or part of the Gaza area. But he's going through all the kind of the history, the geography, and and by the way, there's zombies. But <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that makes me so interested to to know more of the research behind it, more of the actual people that this stuff is based on. And so I I think that's such a great thing that you're taking this very tight approach to this world that you're creating, basing it on real aspects of this world that kind of make everyone go, huh, I wonder, I want to, you know, so I want to learn more about dog racing or sled racing. You know, it, it's the kind of thing everyone knows about in a general sense, but I, you know, I, until now, I didn't even know there was actually a race. And uh, so that, that makes it something I want to get to know more. Yes. 
Emily, uh, Seventh City, I believe, is not your first novel. So as we, as we move to a close for today, briefly, what are some of the other uh, fantasy-ish or fantasy novels that you've written or just other novels that you've written uh, past or perhaps uh, any tease for what your work will be in the future? <laughs> well, I have written a lot of novels. It's just something I really enjoy. So even if I'm not going to publish them right away, I'll write them. But I did, I have two other novels published. I have Crowning Heaven, which is a portal fantasy that was my debut novel. And I have The Last Atlantean, which is a historical fantasy that just came out this year. It's kind of based on the Atlantis legend and also set actually in 1912 Maine on the coast. So it actually touches history more so than, say, Seventh City. And for future stuff, I'm actually... I have a collection of short stories based in the Seventh City world that is coming out on November 17th. So that's uh, actually pretty soon. And I'm drafting a Western fantasy trilogy. Fantastic. I cannot wait to keep track of what lies ahead for you. And it's great to know that there are some of these short stories ahead, too. See, folks, we totally coordinated this episode to release right at about the same time, <laughs> knowing all of this in advance. Uh, Emily, what is the uh, what is that short story collection uh, entitled? It is entitled The Rivers Lead Home and other stories. We will include that link in the show notes if we can. Uh, and where else uh, can uh, where can folks follow you on the social media, your website? Uh, give all of your links there. So you can follow me at, I have my website, which is emilyhayes.com. And I am most on Instagram. I'm at Songs of Heroes is my Instagram handle. But I'm also on Twitter. I'm the hero singer on, on Twitter. And I have a Facebook page, which is Emily Hayes Author. And you can, of course, read more from Emily in the, uh, the cover story of our latest Lorehaven issue, lorehaven.com. And the fall 2020 issue should be right there on the front page, at least until the winter 2020 issue comes out. Uh, she's there on the cover, and uh, it's kind of a, a, a three-part story there. We, of course, have a featured review of Seventh City, uh, which we really enjoyed. And then uh, Emily's article exploring the themes that went into the creation of this story. And then you can start the story yourself for free by reading the prologue there. And, of course, find uh, any further links uh, to find Emily and follow her future stories. And also uh, download the book, uh, which is available at Amazon, Seventh City. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today on Fantastical Truth. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that was wonderful having Emily on the show. And now let's hear from our fantastic fans. Stephen, we got a letter in the mailbag here from David Corder. He wrote us after episode 35 which was our episode about did C.S. Lewis say it's pure moonshine to create stories that teach Christian truth? And we analyzed C.S. Lewis's approach to um, putting truth in his stories. And so David wrote us a really nice letter. I'm just going to read part of it. He says, quote, I enjoyed this episode about C.S. Lewis and his thinking in regards to creating story and how it was talked about. I don't preach in a story. Doing so doesn't make it a story anymore, as you two pointed out. But I find myself a little confused. I agree that fiction is a medium for conveying truth. I also got the impression from this podcast that that is all it should be used for, especially in terms of Christian creatives, which makes me question some of the work I write. Some of my fiction is just purely for fun, with no intention to have any subtle points directed towards God, which I don't think necessarily is a bad thing, 
Does a poem about a rose with no mention of God or any direct indication of truth not glorify God? End quote. Mm, this is a great question. What do you think, Stephen? It is. It is. And I, I think that example of the rose is a perfect lead into, I think, but I mean, you could get a whole podcast series out of just this question about what glorifies God. Is it teaching? Is it uh, exposition of doctrine? Uh, does it have to be a sermon or something nonfiction in order to bring the most glory to God? Let's, let, let's say that you know, God's glory is the 100% level and you know, fiction is 20% glorification of God if you're not sinning any more than usual while doing the thing, but maybe nonfiction or sermons are 50 or 60%. And yet God himself, when God is giving his people in the Old Testament specific directions for building the tabernacle, certainly an instrument of glorification of God, you know, where the people would be doing sacrifices and following ritual law in order to show themselves who God is and who they are by comparison and what they need from God. You know, they need their, uh, their sins to be carried away, you know, in the form of animal sacrifice. And they need to show that they know that God is perfect and they are not. God is teaching through these things, you know, nonfiction teaching, but he's also building in symbols in the construction of the tabernacle, including these floral designs and these sculptures of fantastic creatures and even the minerals included in the tapestries and the textures, like all of those implicitly point to who God is and the wonders of his creation. Some commentators say that the tabernacle uh, that is uh, prescribed in the book of Exodus there after the Ten Commandments uh, is actually meant to be a reflection of Eden, the Garden of Eden as it once was, and all this imagery of God's creation there, the minerals, the animals, the plants, you know, the imagery of the skies and the seas and the land, all of that is meant to reflect God's original creation. And so it is, I think, with the story of a poem about a rose doesn't need to mention God in order to bring glory to God. The person who's bringing glory to God is you if you're writing that poem about a rose. And, you know, as we like to say, this is not a writer's podcast. There's plenty of other resources designed to help you as a creator, if you are a creator, uh, do that in, in a way that most glorifies God. And, you know, with particular attention to excellence in craft. Uh, but as fans, you know, we can appreciate that fact that a, a Christian author who wants to be in the word, wants to be in the gospel, his or her chief end, her highest purpose is not just to teach, not just to evangelize, but as we were talking earlier with Emily Hayes, to give a taste through stories, to give a, an idea, you know, to communicate this directly to the imagination. It's a shortcut to the heart, help us feel and experience to taste and see that God is good. A poem about a rose can do that, and a purely for fun story can do that. In that case, you still have a point. You still have a purpose as a human, as a citizen in making that story. And that purpose, as uh, the uh, as the old confession says, your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think that's a great answer, Stephen. And I'm going to sort of answer a different question, but that is just the kind of the mere opposite of this question. Is it okay to read a novel that has no mention of God or any direct indication of truth? Absolutely. Does that, yeah, that glorify God? If I yeah. can temper that a little bit, I think, I think most Christians, certainly most people who respond to this podcast would say, well, yes, if it's a binary answer, yes or no, is it okay? They'd say yes. But in the back of our minds, we would have that faint suspicion about glory percentages. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, wouldn't it be 80, wouldn't it be 5% better to read a story that has God talk in it, you know, that drops in a John three sixteen or at least <laughs> some reference to deity, you know, whereas if I go over here and just read a Calvin and Hobbes book, you know, there's no mention of God in there, you know, 
would does that bring less glory to god like i i think that's more of the question is 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 a is a question of more or less rather than uh yes or no yeah i mean uh i i've heard i have a very good friend that uh uh, refers to fantasy novels as is a guilty pleasure, and I, I think about that that all the time. And I'm not going to out this friend, but you know, is that how we look at books, whether we're reading them or writing them? Do we look at them as just oh, kind of a frivolous enjoyment? And I would say no. And and here's why I would say that. And again, as a reader, I don't think the value of book comes from how much truth is in it, or just how much truth in it, because I think beauty and goodness also points to our creator. You know, Romans one talks about this, that the invisible qualities of God have been clearly seen by what has been made by by what is visible. And I think that's what a lot of stories do so well is that it, it makes the intangible experiences of, of being a human. It makes that tangible. It shows you what sin looks like. It, um, it shows you what fear and, and hope and, and desire and and really in redemption can look like. And so I don't know if we need to rename our podcast to the fantastical truth, beauty and goodness podcast, but you know, this is a good point that it, we don't just have to find the truth in a story. We can find the other aspects that kind of like Romans one point in their own way towards God. When you look at a sunset, you know, does a sunset have John three sixteen written in the sky? You know, I hope, Hopefully not. You know, you you may need uh, uh, you may need to talk to your doctor if you see that. But you know, a sunset in its own way points to God, but in a very different way than uh, you know, truth from the mouth of babes would speak to God. So I, I think that it's it's totally fine to to glorify God in different ways in what we write and what we read. And this theme is all throughout Scripture. Of course, Scripture doesn't speak specifically to novels or poems and how specifically Christians are to enjoy them. But the idea is we've explored multiple times in this podcast, and as I hope to explore the rest of my life, the idea in scripture is that God has given us these very human gifts for a reason. Those didn't arise by accident. They certainly weren't you know, hacked into the universe by the devil or some you know, malevolent uh, human sin presence there. The idea is that God has given us imagination to do these things as a means of reflecting God back to him. That's glorifying God. That's his idea, not our idea. And therefore, anytime scripture is talking about gifts and the redemption of gifts of God, things like food or holidays or friendship or fellowship, building things, making culture, tilling the earth, uh, turning grapes into wine, uh, making food, bread, any of those things. Like fiction, I think, art, culture, storytelling, all of that falls into the same category of cultural goods that God has given to people. And in that case, uh, that is why I apply uh, the wisdom of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where in in a letter that Paul is writing to a younger pastor who's having a lot of trouble with people who want to be so spiritual, then as now, uh, the Apostle Paul says to, uh, to Timothy, Hey, watch out for the people who are going to question the intrinsic goodness of God's gifts. You know, they're not actually holier than thou. Uh, they're the ones who are missing the purpose of these gifts. And the, and the Apostle Paul writes, quote, or, or paraphrase, really, uh, everything created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy through the word and prayer. And there's a word there, too. It's going to be trending here in a, a couple of weeks after we record this thanksgiving and maybe we need to say more about that hint hint 
But that is how Thanksgiving works with stories. You don't just take them and say, oh, thanks, God. But there's a specific process there that uh, the Apostle Paul alludes to. It is made holy through the word and prayer. The word, God's word, reading the Bible, scripture study, and prayer, oh, those are the two religious things that we suspect are more important than the other things. And yet here we see that, yes, those are more important, but because it is through those things that God is working in us to, in some way, redeem these gifts, make them holy for our enjoyment and for the glorification of God. So yes, it's all important, uh, but it works in different ways. Well, next week is Thanksgiving, so we are going to actually take the week off from releasing a full episode. And uh, But Stephen, what's coming up after that? Well, we are, of course, heading into the Christmas shopping season, which means Black Friday sales all month, whatever it uh, turns out to be during the pandemic, which, of course, brings to mind the memories and the quest for toys. Even if you are not a parent uh, looking for toys for Christmas, uh, you definitely remember being a child, and I hope that you had the blessing of indulging in the American experience of terrible materialism and consumerism and all the memes about finding the perfect Tickle Me Elmo or Pokemon or whatever it is. We won't get into that as much in our next episode, but I thought it'd be fun to do a little blast of the past and look at a book that actually, in retrospect, turns out to have shaped my career more than I would have thought. Uh, It's actually a 1983 book from vintage evangelical culture Uh, that I recently had the pleasure of rediscovering. It was by a chap called Phil Phillips, which I think is the name that Kermit the Frog gave when he had amnesia (laughs) and the Muppets take Manhattan and he had to come up with a marketable name real quick for himself. (laughs) The book is called Turmoil in the Toy Box and the cover is magnificent. So you need to listen to the podcast just to hear us describe the cover or go to the show notes and see this amazing cover with all of the 1980s packed into one toy box hurtling through space at you the cover viewer sent forth from the devil. And we'll have a little bit of fun with this, but also show a bit of respect too for what the author was trying to do, which uh, one way or another uh, helped to inform uh, my uh, book with two co-authors, The Pop Culture Parent. Uh, We're going to have fun exploring that and uh, hopefully uh, shed a little light on how Christians have interacted with toys and popular culture in the past uh, versus how we might interact with those fantastical things now. Meanwhile, stay warm. Face those challenges in the wintry lands, especially now, by the way, that we're going through, at least in the United States, a tendentious sort of season. Uh, Make sure that you are focusing on the fact that God is in control of this story. And sometimes we do just need to let go and let him tell it to the finish as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.